Question 88, Part 1 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues The Virtue of Justice This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues the Virtue of Justice, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 88 of Vows in Twelve Articles Part 1, Articles 1 through 6 We must now consider vows, whereby something is promised to God. Under this head there are twelve points of inquiry first what is a vow second what is the matter of a vow third of the obligation of vows fourth of the use of taking vows fifth of what virtue is it an act sixth whether it is more meritorious to do a thing from a vow than without a vow seventh of the solemnizing of a vow. Eighth, whether those who are under another's power can take vows. Ninth, whether children may be bound by vow to enter religion. Tenth, whether a vow is subject to dispensation or commutation. Eleventh, whether a dispensation can be granted in a solemn vow of continence. Twelfth, whether the authority of a superior is required in a dispensation from a vow. First article. Whether a vow consists in a mere purpose of the will. Objection 1. It would seem that a vow consists in nothing but a purpose of the will. According to some, for example William of Exer or Albert Manius, a vow is a conception of a good purpose after a firm deliberation of the mind, whereby a man binds himself before God to do or not to do a certain thing. But the conception of a good purpose, and so forth, may consist in a mere movement of the will. Therefore, a vow consists in a mere purpose of the will. Objection to, further, the very word vow seems to be derived from voluntas, will. For one is said to do a thing proprio voto, by one's own vow, when one does it voluntarily. Now to purpose is an act of the will, while to promise is an act of the reason. Therefore, a vow consists in a mere act of the will. Objection 3 further. Our Lord said in Luke 9, verse 62, No man putting his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now from the very fact that a man has a purpose of doing good, he puts his hand to the plough. Consequently, if he look back by desisting from his good purpose, he is not fit for the kingdom of God. Therefore, by a mere good purpose, a man is bound before God even without making a promise, and consequently it would seem that a vow consists 
in a mere purpose of the will. On the contrary, it is written in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 3, If thou hast vowed anything to God, defer not to pay it, for an unfaithful and foolish promise displeaseth him. Therefore, to vow is to promise, and a vow is a promise. I answer that. A vow denotes a binding to do or omit some particular thing. Now when man binds himself to another by means of a promise, which is an act of the reason to which faculty it belongs to direct. For just as a man by commanding or praying directs, in a fashion, what others are to do for him, so by promising he directs what he himself is to do for another. Now a promise between man and man can only be expressed in words or any other outward signs, whereas a promise can be made to God by the mere inward thought, since according to First Kings 16.7, man seeth those things that appear, but the Lord beholdeth the heart. Yet we express words outwardly sometimes, either to arouse ourselves, as was stated above with regard to prayer, in question 83, article 12, or to call others to witness, so that one may refrain from breaking the vow, not only through fear of God, but also through respect of men. Now a promise is the outcome from a purpose of doing something, and a purpose presupposes deliberation, since it is the act of a deliberate will. Accordingly, three things are essential to a vow. The first is deliberation, the second is purpose of the will, and the third is a promise, wherein is completed the nature of a vow. Sometimes, however, two other things are added as a sort of confirmation of the vow, namely, pronouncement by word of mouth, according to Psalm 65.13, I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered, and the witnessing of others. Hence the Master says that a vow is the witnessing of a spontaneous promise and ought to be made to God and about things relating to God. Although the witnessing may strictly refer to the inward protestation. Reply to Objection 1. The conceiving of a good purpose is not confirmed by the deliberation of the mind unless the deliberation lead to a promise. Reply to Objection 2. Man's will moves the reason to promise something related to things subject to his will, and a vow takes its name from the will for as much as it proceeds from the will as first mover. Reply to Objection 3. He that puts his hand to the plow does something already, while he that merely purposes to do something does nothing so far. When, however, he promises, he already sets about doing, although he does not yet fulfill the promise. Even so, he that puts his hand to the plow does not plow yet. Nevertheless, he stretches out his hand for the purpose of plowing. Second article. Whether a vow should always be about a better good. Objection 1. It would seem that a vow need not be always about a better good, 
a greater good is one that pertains to supererogation. But vows are not only about matters of supererogation, but also about matters of salvation. Thus in baptism men vow to renounce the devil and his pomps, and to keep the faith, as a gloss observes on Psalm 75, verse 12. Vow ye, and pay to the Lord your God. And Jacob vowed in Genesis 28:21 that the Lord should be his God. Now this above all is necessary for salvation. Therefore, vows are not only about a better good. Objection to further. Jephthah is included among the saints in Hebrews 11:32. Yet he killed his innocent daughter on account of his vow. Confer Judges 11. Since then the slaying of an innocent person is not a better good, but is in itself unlawful, it seems that a vow may be made not only about a better good, but also about something unlawful. Objection 3 further. Things that tend to be harmful to the person, or that are quite useless, do not come under the head of a better good. Yet sometimes vows are made about immoderate vigils or fasts which tend to injure the person, and sometimes vows are about indifferent matters, and such as are useful to no purpose. Therefore, a vow is not always about a better good. On the contrary, it is written in Deuteronomy 23, verse 22, If thou wilt not promise, thou shalt be without sin. I answer that, as stated above in Article 1, a vow is a promise made to God. Now a promise is about something that one does voluntarily for someone else, since it would be not a promise but a threat to say that one would do something against someone. In like manner, it would be futile to promise anyone something unacceptable to him. Wherefore, as every sin is against God, and since no work is acceptable to God unless it be virtuous, it follows that nothing unlawful or indifferent, but only some act of virtue, should be the matter of a vow. But as a vow denotes a voluntary promise, while necessity excludes voluntariness, whatever is absolutely necessary, whether to be or not to be, can nowise be the matter of a vow. For it would be foolish to vow that one would die or that one would not fly. On the other hand, if a thing be necessary, not absolutely but on the supposition of an end, for instance, if salvation be unattainable without it, it may be the matter of a vow in so far as it is done voluntarily, but not in so far as there is a necessity for doing it. For that which is not necessary, neither absolutely nor on the supposition of an end, is altogether voluntary, and therefore is most properly the matter of a vow. And this is said to be a greater good in comparison with that which is universally necessary for salvation. Therefore, properly speaking, a vow is said to be about a better good. Reply to Objection 1. Renouncing the devil's pomps and keeping the faith of Christ are the matter of baptismal vows, 
insofar as these things are done voluntarily, although they are necessary for salvation. The same answer applies to Jacob's vow, although it may also be explained that Jacob vowed that he would have the Lord for his God by giving him a special form of worship to which he was not bound, for instance, by offering tithes and so forth as mentioned further on in the same passage. Reply to Objection 2. Certain things are good, whatever be the result. Such are acts of virtue, and these can be, absolutely speaking, the matter of a vow. Some are evil, whatever the result may be, as those things which are sins in themselves, and these can nowise be the matter of a vow. While some, considered in themselves, are good, and as such may be the matter of a vow, yet they may have an evil result, in which case the vow must not be kept. It was thus with the vow of Jephthah, who, as related in Judges 11, verses 30 and 31, made a vow to the Lord, saying, If thou wilt deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, whosoever shall first come forth out of the doors of my house, and shall meet me when I return in peace, the same will I offer a holocaust to the Lord. For this could have an evil result if, as indeed happened, he were to be met by some animal for which it would be unlawful to sacrifice, such as an ass or a human being. Hence Jerome says, In vowing he was foolish, through lack of discretion, and in keeping his vow he was wicked. Yet it is premised in Judges 11.29 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, because his faith and devotion which moved him to make that vow were from the Holy Ghost. And for this reason he is reckoned among the saints, as also by reason of the victory which he obtained, and because it is probable that he repented of his sinful deed, which nevertheless foreshadowed something good. Reply to Objection 3. The mortification of one's own body, for instance by vigils and fasting, is not acceptable to God except in so far as it is an act of virtue. And this depends on its being done with due discretion, namely, that concupiscence be curbed without overburdening nature. On this condition such things may be the matter of a vow. Hence the Apostle says, after saying in Romans 12 verse 1, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, adds, your reasonable service. Since, however, man is easily mistaken in judging of matters concerning himself, such vows as these are more fittingly kept or disregarded according to the judgment of a superior, yet so that, should a man find that without doubt he is seriously burdened by keeping such a vow, and should he be unable to appeal to his superior, he ought not to keep it. As to vows about vain and useless things, they should be ridiculed rather than kept. Third Article Whether All Vows Are Binding Objection 1. It would seem that vows are not all binding. For man needs things that are done by another more than God does, since he has no need for our goods. Now according to the prescription of human laws, 
A simple promise made to a man is not binding, and this seems to be prescribed on account of the changeableness of the human will. Much less binding, therefore, is a simple promise made to God, which we call a vow. Objection to. Further, no one is bound to do what is impossible. Now sometimes that which a man has vowed becomes impossible to him, either because it depends on another's decision, as when, for instance, a man vows to enter a monastery, the monks of which refuse to receive him, or on account of some defect arising, for instance, when a woman vows virginity, and afterwards is deflowered, or when a man vows to give a sum of money, and afterwards loses it. Therefore, a vow is not always binding. Objection 3 further. If a man is bound to pay something, he must do so at once. But a man is not bound to pay his vow at once, especially if it be taken under a condition to be fulfilled in the future. Therefore, a vow is not always binding. On the contrary, it is written in Ecclesiastes 5 verses 3 and 4, Whatsoever thou hast vowed, pay it. And it is much better not to vow than after a vow not to perform the things promised. I answer that. For one to be accounted faithful, one must keep one's promises. Wherefore, according to Augustine, faith takes its name from a man's deed agreeing with his word. Now man ought to be faithful to God above all, both on account of God's sovereignty and on account of the favors he has received from God. Hence a man is obliged before all to fulfill the vows he has made to God. Since this is part of the fidelity he owes to God. On the other hand, the breaking of a vow is a kind of infidelity. Wherefore Solomon gives the reason why vows should be paid to God, because an unfaithful promise displeaseth him. Ecclesiastes 5.3 Reply to Objection 1 Honesty demands that a man should keep any promise he makes to another man, and this obligation is based on the natural law. But for a man to be under a civil obligation through a promise he has made, other conditions are requisite. And although God needs not our goods, we are under a very great obligation to him, so that a vow made to him is most binding. Reply to Objection 2. If that which a man has vowed becomes impossible to him through any cause whatsoever, he must do what he can, so that he have at least a will ready to do what he can. Hence, if a man has vowed to enter a monastery, he must endeavor to the best of his power to be received there. And if his intention was to chiefly bind himself to enter the religious life, so that, in consequence, he choose this particular form of religious life or this place as being most agreeable to him, he is bound, should he be unable to be received there, to enter the religious life elsewhere. But if his principal intention is to bind himself to this particular kind of religious life or to this particular place, because the one or the other pleases him in some special way, he is not bound to enter another religious house, 
if they are unwilling to receive him into this particular one. On the other hand, if he be rendered incapable of fulfilling his vow through his own fault, he is bound over and above to do penance for his past fault. Thus, if a woman has vowed virginity and is afterwards violated, she is bound not only to observe what is in her power, namely perpetual continency, but also to repent of what she has lost by sinning. Reply to Objection 3 The obligation of a vow is caused by our own will and intention, wherefore it is written in Deuteronomy 23.23, That which is once gone out of thy lips thou shalt observe, and thou shalt do as thou hast promised to the Lord thy God, and hast spoken with thy own will and with thy own mouth. Wherefore, if in taking a vow it is one's intention and will to bind oneself to fulfill it at once, one is bound to fulfill it immediately. But if one intend to fulfill it at a certain time or under a certain condition, one is not bound to immediate fulfillment. And yet one not ought to delay longer than one intended to bind oneself, for it is written in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, When thou hast made a vow to the Lord thy God, thou shalt not delay to pay it, because the Lord thy God will require it. And if thou delay, it shall be imputed to thee for a sin. Fourth Article whether it is expedient to take vows. Objection 1. It would seem that it is not expedient to take vows. It is not expedient to anyone to deprive himself of the good that God has given him. Now one of the greatest goods that God has given man is liberty, whereof he seems to be deprived by the necessity implicated in a vow. Therefore, it would seem inexpedient for a man to take vows. Objection to further. No man should expose himself to danger. But whoever takes a vow exposes himself to danger, since that which, before taking a vow, he could omit without danger, becomes a source of danger to him if thou should not fulfill it after taking the vow. Hence Augustine says, since thou hast vowed, thou hast bound thyself, thou canst not do otherwise. If thou dost not what thou hast vowed, thou wilt not be as thou wouldest have been, hadst thou not vowed. For then thou wouldest have been less great, not less good. Whereas now, if thou breakest fault with God, which God forbid, thou art the more unhappy, as thou wouldest have been happier, Hadst thou kept thy vow? Therefore, it is not expedient to take vows. Objection 3 further. The Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Be ye followers of me, as I also am of Christ. But we do not read that either Christ or the Apostle took any vows. Therefore, it would seem inexpedient to take vows. On the contrary, it is written in Psalm 75, verse 12, Vow ye, and pay to the Lord your God. 
I answer that, as stated above in Articles 1 and 2, a vow is a promise made to God. Now one makes a promise to a man under one aspect and to God under another. Because we promise something to a man for his own profit, since it profits him that we should be of service to him and that we should at first assure him of the future fulfillment of that service. Whereas we make promises to God not only for his but for our profit. Hence Augustine says, He is a kind and not a needy exactor, for he does not grow rich on our payments, but makes those who pay him grow rich in him. And just as what we give God is useful not to him but to us, since what is given him is added to the giver, as Augustine says in one of his letters, so also a promise whereby we vow something to God does not conduce to his profit, nor does he need to be assured by us, but it conduces to our profit, in so far as by vowing we fix our wills immovably on that which is expedient to do. Hence it is expedient to take vows. Reply to Objection 1. Even as one's liberty is not lessened, by one being unable to sin, so too the necessity resulting from a will firmly fixed to good does not lessen the liberty, as instanced in God and the blessed. Such is the necessity implied by a vow, bearing a certain resemblance to the confirmation of the blessed. Hence Augustine says, again in his letter, that happy is the necessity that compels us to do the better things. Reply to Objection 2. When danger arises from the deed itself, this deed is not expedient, for instance, that one cross a river by a tottering bridge. But if the danger arise through man's failure in the deed, the latter does not cease to be expedient. Thus it is expedient to mount on horseback, though there be the danger of a fall from the horse, Hence it would behoove one to desist from all good things that may become dangerous accidentally. Wherefore it is written in Ecclesiastes 11.4, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that considereth the clouds shall never reap. Now a man incurs danger not from the vow itself, but from his faults when he changes his mind by breaking his vow, Hence Augustine says, Repent not of thy vow, thou shouldest rather rejoice, that thou canst no longer do what thou mightest lawfully have done to thy detriment. Reply to Objection 3. It was incompetent for Christ by his very nature to take a vow, both because he was God and because as man his will was firmly fixed on the good since he was a comprehensor. By a kind of similitude, however, he is represented as saying, in Psalm 21, verse 26, I will pay my vows in the sight of them that fear him, when he is speaking of his body, which is the church. The apostles are understood to have vowed things pertaining to the state of perfection when they left all things and followed Christ. Fifth article. 
whether a vow is an act of latria or religion. Objection 1. It would seem that a vow is not an act of latria or religion. Every act of virtue is matter for a vow. Now it would seem to pertain to the same virtue to promise a thing and to do it. Therefore, a vow pertains to any virtue, and not to religion especially. Objection to further. According to Tully in On Invention 253, it belongs to religion to offer God worship and ceremonial rites. But he who takes a vow does not yet offer something to God, but only promises it. Therefore, a vow is not an act of religion. Objection 3 further. Religious worship should be offered to none but God. But a vow is made not only to God, but also to the saints and to one's superiors, to whom religious vow obedience when they make their profession. Therefore, a vow is not an act of religion. On the contrary, it is written in Isaiah 19.21, The Egyptians shall worship him with sacrifices and offerings, and they shall make vows to the Lord and perform them. Now the worship of God is properly the act of religion, or latria. Therefore, a vow is an act of latria, or religion. I answer that, as stated above in question 81, article 1, first reply, every act of virtue belongs to religion or latria, by a way of command, insofar as it is directed to the reverence of God, which is the proper end of latria. Now the direction of other actions to their end belongs to the commanding virtue, not to those which are commanded. Therefore the direction of the acts of any virtue to the service of God is the proper act of latria. Now it is evident from what has been said above in Articles 1 and 2 that a vow is a promise made to God and that a promise is nothing else than a directing of the thing promised to the person to whom the promise is made. Hence a vow is a directing of the thing vowed to the worship or service of God. And thus it is clear that to take a vow is properly an act of latria or religion. Reply to Objection 1. The matter of a vow is sometimes the act of another virtue, as, for instance, keeping the fast or observing continency, while sometimes it is an act of religion, as offering a sacrifice or praying. But promising either of them to God belongs to religion, for the reason given above. Hence it is evident that some vows belong to religion by reason only of the promise made to God, which is the essence of a vow, while others belong thereto by reason also of the thing promised, which is the matter of the vow. Reply to Objection 2. He who promises something gives it already in as far as he binds himself to give it even as a thing is said to be made when its cause is made, because the effect is contained virtually in the cause. This is why we thank not only a giver, but also one who promises to give. Reply to Objection 3. A vow is made to God alone, whereas a promise 
may be made to a man also, and this very promise of good which is made to a man may be the matter of a vow, and in so far as it is a virtuous act. This is how we are to understand vows whereby we vow something to the saints or to one's superiors, so that the promise made to the saints or to one's superiors is the matter of the vow, in so far as one vows to God to fulfill what one has promised to the saints or other superiors. Sixth article. Whether it is more praiseworthy and meritorious to do something in fulfillment of a vow than without a vow. Objection 1. It would seem that it is more praiseworthy and meritorious to do a thing without a vow than in fulfillment of a vow. Prosper says in On the Contemplative Life too, We should abstain or fast without putting ourselves under the necessity of fasting, lest that which we are free to do be done without devotion and unwillingly. Now he who vows to fast puts himself under the necessity of fasting. Therefore, it would be better for him to fast without taking the vow. Objection to further. The Apostle says in Second Corinthians 9.7, Everyone as he hath determined in his heart, not with sadness or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now some fulfill sorrowfully what they have vowed, and this seems to be due to the necessity arising from the vow, for necessity is a cause of sorrow, according to Metaphysics 5. Therefore, it is better to do something without a vow than in fulfillment of a vow. Objection 3 further. A vow is necessary for the purpose of fixing the will on that which is vowed, as stated above in Article 4. But the will cannot be more fixed on a thing than when it actually does that thing. Therefore, it is no better to do a thing in fulfillment of a vow than without a vow. On the contrary, a gloss on the words of Psalm 75, verse 12, Vow ye and pay, says, Vows are counseled to the will. But a counsel is about none but a better good. Therefore it is better to do a deed in fulfillment of a vow than without a vow, since he that does it without a vow fulfills only one counsel, notably the counsel to do it, whereas he that does it with a vow fulfills two counsels, notably the counsel to vow and the counsel to do it. I answer that, for three reasons, it is better and more meritorious to do one and the same deed with a vow than without. First, because to vow, as stated above in Article 5, is an act of religion which is the chief of the moral virtues. Now the more excellent the virtue, the better and more meritorious the deed. Wherefore the act of an inferior virtue is the better and more meritorious for being commanded by a superior virtue, whose act it becomes through being commanded by it, just as the act of faith or hope is better if it be commanded by charity. Hence the works of the other moral virtues, for instance fasting 
which is an act of abstinence, and being continent, which is an act of chastity, are better and more meritorious if they be done in fulfillment of a vow, since thus they belong to the divine worship, being like sacrifices to God. Wherefore Augustine says in On Virginity 8 that not even is virginity honorable as such, but only when it is consecrated to God and cherished by godly continence. Secondly, because he that vows something and does it subjects himself to God more than he that only does it. For he subjects himself to God not only as to the act, but also as to the power, since in future he can do something else. Even so he gives more who gives the tree with its fruit than he that gives the fruit only, as Anselm observes. For this reason we thank even those who promise, as stated above, in Article 5, Second Reply. Thirdly, because a vow fixes the will on the good immovably, and to do anything of a will that is fixed on the good belongs to the perfection of virtue, according to the philosopher in Ethics 2.4, just as to sin with an obstinate mind aggravates the sin and is called a sin against the Holy Ghost, as stated above in question 14, article 2. Reply to Objection 1. The passage quoted should be understood as referring to necessity of coercion, which causes an act to be involuntary and excludes devotion. Hence he says pointedly, Lest that which we are free to do be done without devotion and unwillingly. On the other hand, the necessity resulting from a vow is caused by the immobility of the will, wherefore it strengthens the will and increases devotion. Hence the argument does not conclude. Reply to Objection 2 According to the philosopher, necessity of coercion, insofar as it is opposed to the will, causes sorrow. But the necessity resulting from a vow in those who are well disposed, insofar as it strengthens the will, causes not sorrow, but joy. Hence Augustine says, Repent not of thy vow, thou shouldest rather rejoiced that thou canst no longer do what thou mightest lawfully have done to thy detriment. If, however, the very deed considered in itself were to become disagreeable and involuntary after one has taken the vow, the will to fulfill it remaining withal is still more meritorious than if it were done without the vow, since the fulfillment of a vow is an act of religion which is a greater virtue than abstinence, of which fasting is an act. Reply to Objection 3. He who does something without having vowed it has an immovable will as regards the individual deed which he does and at the same time when he does it. But his will does not remain altogether fixed for the time to come, as does the will of one who makes a vow. For the latter has bound his will to do something, both before he did that particular deed and perchance to do it many times. End of question 88, part 1. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.